Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. This show is dedicated to my friend and confidant, Milt Sokolar, who in his 90s is fighting to stay in this life. Your fight is my fight, Milt. May peace be with you, my brother. Today is Friday, July the 16th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, July 19th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We want to remind you that this is the 31st anniversary of the Americans with Disability Act, and we here at Co-op Radio are celebrating ADA all month long. Please join us. At koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 65th post COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. So thank you for joining us. Tonight's show is focused on systemic racism, defining it, its historical antecedents being connected to present-day modern forms of discrimination, the realization that that oppression has always been the mainstay of the African-American experience in the United States. The only thing that has changed are those methods of oppression, is what we will empirically lay out tonight, is what you should expect from this show. We have a very special guest, a New Orleans native who has been part of a, a race discussion for the last 20 years and brings an illuminating experience and insights to the issue of systemic racism. Amel Meredith will be joining us shortly. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. And we are broadcasting from Austin, Texas. Today is Friday, July the 16th, 2021, and we are pre-recording a show that will be airing this Monday, July the 19th, 2021, at 6 p.m. at 91.7 KOOP, right here in the capital city of Austin, Texas. Before we get going, I wanted to formally welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness, Meredith Martin, a.k.a. Amal, and Amal, I... If I can call you Amal, uh, I, I would prefer that. That's beautiful. That's how I met you. I've been, I've been going to these erase dialogues that we have every Saturday. I've been going since last October, and I've found them to be very helpful in addressing issues and understandings around black studies. And that's how I met Amal. So first, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Appreciate the invitation. Thanks for having me. I love your bio. I wanted to just share part of it here with our audience that Amal was born and raised in New Orleans. He was uh, miseducated in the public school system. He began to educate himself through readings and basically I've you've brought a lot of those readings to our groups 
I'm very, very impressed by your studying history independently and in great, great depth. Part of that study was the autobiography of Malcolm X you included in your bio here. So, uh, again, welcome, uh, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Appreciate the invitation. I'm here to learn. Yeah, well, let's, myself, you know, that's the, that's the beauty of this show, preparing for shows. It's a very, actually, it's a very selfish venture. Things that I want to learn more about, well, I'll start studying them and then get people on to help me understand them. But that's another story. What I wanted to start off with, you know, there's a big movement that's going on. It's interesting with the George Floyd murder and the uprisings that, that we've had due to the murders of so many African-Americans at police stops and those types of things. And there was a big upheaval in the streets as well. But also uh, there were things like, you know, Robin DiAngelo's white fragility. There's just like this whole movement that's been going on for some time in, in order to get white people to maybe appreciate more the nature of their of the privilege that they have just by being white. With that, with that being said, it's important to acknowledge there's many, many white people that are in stoned poverty that live miserable, very challenging lives. But proportionately, due to the great racial wealth divide, way too many African Americans suffer the same plight. But that aside, Robin D'Angelo's work one thing that's been missing in my mind has been any addressing and acknowledgement of the material conditions that has led to this whole Black Lives Matter movement and everything kind of connected to it, that there's this profound material deprivation and it just seems to be tippy-toed around. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is that whenever you turn on the TV and you're hearing people talk about race... And this is true particularly for liberal Democrats, it seems. The one thing that's tippy-toed around is this material deprivation thing. And I wanted to start the show off with just a brief overview of the, the history of the material deprivations of blacks in the United States of America right up until today. The methods of oppression have changed, but the material deprivation history has not. And we will show tonight that that material deprivation, the defining feature or, or defining outcome, that defines the most pernicious dimension of systemic racism. That when you think about slavery, of course, with slavery, it was kind of self-evident that gross wealth inequality was, you know, this whole thing was launched. You know, how could one accumulate wealth in the absence of owning even their own labor. So that's pretty straightforward. But with the end of slavery, with the uh, Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, what followed were a series of outcomes that together continued gross inequality that faced blacks and their ability to accumulate wealth. Namely, the U.S. government first reneged on its promise of 40 acres and a mule for all the former slaves. Secondly, there were many elements of the Jim Crow era and laws that occurred following that we were taught is the Reconstruction period, and this is from 1865 to 1877. But immediately following the Reconstruction period, after the Union soldiers withdrew in 1877, white supremacy flourished and continued to haunt the African American. During that period, and I just wanted to briefly just talk about that, so please bear with me here, that what February 1st, 1865 is when President Lincoln signed the 13th Amendment, 
which is considered the first Reconstruction Amendment, in which abolished slavery. But it was on December 6th, 1865, that the 13th Amendment became official part of our Constitution. And that was eight months after the assassination of Lincoln. The Reconstruction period was the period of time that these ideals of trying to grant equality to uh, folks were enforced by the Union Army. And the Union Army withdrew from the South in 1877. And although there had been some advances, as soon as the Army withdrew, this is followed by the re-emergence of white supremacy, those that rapidly started reasserting its privilege through all of these Jim Crow laws. And I wanted to talk about Real quickly, in the 13th Amendment, it did indicate the emancipation of African Americans, but it was written in such a way to create a huge loophole, large enough to drive a truck through, and in fact, that's, that's what happened. In, in Section 1, it was written with the following language, and I quote, neither slavery or involuntary servitude, and here's the loophole, except as a punishment for crime where the party shall be duly convicted, Okay. So this prejudicially opened up potential avenues to take the newly won freedoms of blacks away by criminalizing certain behaviors that they could be prosecuted for. And this is exactly what happened. As a result, much of the what's called black codes, which had actually started occurring before the emancipation period, but continued after, it sought to stamp out and counteract this 13th Amendment by criminalizing black behavior, things like vagrancy, which of course is ill-defined, that if you could not prove that you were working for somebody, and back then they didn't really have pay stubs and that type of thing, so you could be arrested and for allegedly not being employed. And what I want to get to, I mean, there's people that have written about this. The uh, Slavery by Another Name is one book that's very, very, very well put together. But in this kind of... As well as a documentary. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. And... But this convict leasing, it, it allowed blacks, once they were arrested, to provide prison labor. Once again, inhibiting blacks to accumulate wealth. Also, immediately after the Emancipation Proclamation, there were labor codes and labor contracts. So African Americans or blacks were getting paid, but they were getting paid hardly anything. And they were working for their same, uh, many of the same slave owners in the past. But... In this convict leasing, basically it was a legal form of providing prison labor to plantation owners and private corporations, and it ensured the cotton industry that they would be unaffected since slaves were, had been freed. And many people argued that it was worse than slavery because some of these workers were worked to death because if they died, the state would send replacements in this convict leasing deal. Whereas with slavery, there was an incentive to take care of your slaves to get more free labor out of them. So you get locked up for a minor charge or inability to pay a fine. You're used free labor while behind bars. And it also signaled a shift in the racial makeup of prisoners. And, and this is what's so striking to me is that according to information that I was able to document in Alabama, there was like in 1850, 99% of those incarcerated were white. Okay. If you fast forward to the 1880s and onward, during which convict leasing was so prevalent, following this Reconstruction period, 17 years after the emancipation, 85% of the incarcerated were black. So in Alabama, in a matter of a few decades, the prison population turned from over 90% white to 85% black. 
So you do away with slavery, yet you create an incarcerated population. And today, you know, in today's world, just under 40% of the nation's prisoners are black, yet they only make up 13% of the U.S. population. Anyhow, just a couple more things here. With the end of slavery as a legal form of oppression, then new methods under the new Jim Crow laws occurred, okay? And so what I'm trying to put together for our listeners is what I've come to understand that the different types of oppression have, of course, changed. Slavery was outlawed, but a new form of oppression emerged in the form of this convict leasing. And black codes were just two examples. And then also, when you move out of the early 20th century, more modern-day forms of discrimination also occurred. Okay, so when we talk about the modern-day forms of discrimination that supplanted the Jim Crow laws and the inability of African Americans to accumulate any significant wealth, there was no other New Deal initiative that had as great an impact on changing the country as a Selective Service Adjustment Act. That's the GI Bill. Even today, this legislation, which became called the GI Bill of Rights, qualifies as the most wide-ranging set of social benefits ever offered by the federal government in a single comprehensive initiative. And this is from When Affirmative Action Was White, An Untold Story of Racial Inequality in the 20th Century America by Ira Katznelson. But between 1944 and 1971, federal spending for former soldiers in this model welfare system, if you will, totaled over $95 billion. By 1948, 15% of the federal budget was devoted to the GI Bill. With the help of the GI Bill, millions bought homes, attended college, started businesses, ventures, and found jobs commiserate with their skill sets. Through these opportunities and by advancing the momentum towards suburban living, mass consumption, and the creation of wealth and economic security, this legislation essentially created the middle class of America. The only problem was that African Americans were mainly left out of it. In what can be described as a modern-day form of discrimination. Although President Franklin Roosevelt signed the GI Bill into law in 1944, it laid the foundation for benefits that would help generations to achieve social mobility. In a separate piece, this 2006 article in the Journal of Blacks and Higher Education details the advantages and disadvantages the black population faced when putting the GI Bill to use. And Edward Humes writes, quote, Black veterans and their families were denied their fair share of multi-generational enriching impact of home ownership and economic security that the GI Bill conferred on a majority, a majority of white veterans, their children, and their grandchildren. The article went on to say, finally, quote, such an imbalance went against Roosevelt's intentions as he had purposefully created the, f- the first social legislation that did not discriminate on the basis of race. And I guess, you know, one of the things I just wanted to quickly comment was that that's what the overriding nature of systemic racism is. You can create legislation, and certainly that was the intent of, of the President Roosevelt, but you can see what happened here. Just to go on here, this GI Bill, is much of the disparity of the, in the disseminating of the GI benefits came from the efforts of those who argued for the bill to be a matter of local control and states' rights. So instead of being federally imposed, you had these uh, staunch segregationists. One of them is this guy Rankin, and he helped draft the bill and it ensured that local veterans administrations controlled the distribution of funds, and this meant that black Southerners that applied for their assistance faced all sorts of prejudices 
from these white officials, and they were generally forced into vocational schools instead of colleges or denied their benefits altogether. To go on, the other major modern-day discrimination element that's worth, worthy of mention is the Social Security Act itself, which preceded the GI Bill back in 1935, and it would exclude the long list of workers, including agricultural and domestic workers. And one historian calculated that more than three-fifths of the black workers, those employed in, uh, in agricultural labor or domestic services, so they were excluded from coverage. The African-American historian John Hope Franklin observed, quote, when the Social Security Board was established in 1935, provisions were made for old age assistance and unemployment benefits in a large number of categories. But since the agricultural and domestic workers were excluded, a tremendous proportion of the Negro population failed to qualify. So what you have is everyone getting an uplift from these middle class types of fundings with through the Social Security Act and the GI Bill, yet the African American population was once again disproportionately carved out of receiving most any of the benefits of that pot uh, with nothing or very, very little. So you have slavery, you have the Jim Crow laws, and as we move forward, we'll get into some more modern-day forms of discrimination and stuff. But I just wanted to set the stage. That's, that's what systemic racism is, is that regardless of the decades and, the, you know, actually the centuries that have passed since slavery, you still have all of these other new forms of modern-day discrimination that we have not even started to speak to yet today. So with that introduction to what systemic racism is, I just wanted to ask you, Amal, for some of your reflections on that history as you understand it, and maybe you can tie some of this together to give people a better understanding as to why the wealth inequality as we sit here today is the median family for head of household in, in a black family has one-tenth, ten cents on the dollar of, of a white family, and here we are in, you know, well into the 21st century. Well... First and foremost, uh, your introduction was excellent, and uh, you know I can't—I have no uh, no issues uh, in terms of the historical accuracy of the introduction. As far as the uh, wealth inequality, uh, which was the, the the main part of your your introduction, if you go back in history once again, and you start at slavery and you move things forward, there was this point. There was a period in time when black people did accumulate wealth because we were forced to do business with each other. Mm-hmm. And this is how you get areas like Black Wall Street, like uh, Rosewood, like uh, um, uh, Wilmington. Uh, uh, it's in North Carolina, but I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not pronouncing it. Uh, right. Anyway, so there were these little black towns that popped up all over the United States. And the wealth that that black people accumulated was able to stay within the confines of those communities. Keep in mind, after slavery, we had the skill level. You know, the the brick mason and the iron worker and uh, the different skills that you were, the building skills. Black people had those skills after slavery because we we needed them so that the, the white people could could build using our free labor. After slavery, we still had those skills. What happened was we were getting jobs that was able to put our skills to use so white and which were putting a lot of uh, Caucasian males out of out of work. So what did they do? They formed unions. And in forming those unions that kept us out of out of out of certain jobs, which means hey, we're not making no money, which means we're not getting any wealth. So 
those black towns that I had mentioned where that we had built, the, the money and the dollar was able to circulate in the community, which kept our wealth within. Well, why don't those communities exist no more? Well, there was some jealousy there um, and amongst the white community, seeing that we were accumulating so much wealth and building, and those towns were burned. Those towns were, uh, the, the people in those towns were killed or moved off of the, their own land. And, and and we weren't able to pass down any wealth to our children, grandchildren, so on and so forth. Black people own land, lots of land, at a certain point in time in history. The question then becomes, how much land do we own in 2021 in the United States of America? Less than 0.1%. You can't build no wealth like that. Right. You can't build no wealth. You can't pass down any wealth. There's no wealth production when you barely own land. So these the, the the reason that a lot of what we had doesn't exist now is because of Caucasian terrorism, which is what I call it. A lot of people want to call it, dress it up under a lot of little fancy names, but I call it Caucasian terrorists. And these terrorists terrorize the black community under under the banner of the law, and in doing so, took the wealth that we did have. Mm-hmm. So... You know, that's why we don't have the things that people would traditionally say. You know, when people always say, oh, why don't you pull yourself up by your boots? Well, when we did that, you know, the, the, our boots were cut off of our feet. Let me, yeah. let me get to the GI Bill, because that, that, that was a very interesting part. Yeah. If, you go, if, you look, if you look at the GI Bill, you look at the, the, the military service of African Americans, and, and contrary to what people don't know, we served in every war that the United States has ever had. Mm-hmm. But let's come into the, uh, the, the the 20th century and look at the war from World War One, World War Two, and so on and so forth. If you look at when the GI Bill was put, was was put into effect, and there's a, a Caucasian gentleman by the name of Tim Wise. He has a, a documentary, and I believe there's a book to accompany it called Whiteness. Um, I think I'm saying that right. And if you look at the documentary, he goes into very a very good detail about how you get these these suburbs in, in the United States, if you will, after World War II, when a lot of these suburbs popped up, when people were using the GI Bill to go to school, get get more education, which which means better jobs, which means better pay, which means I could live a decent life and pro- to provide for my family. He goes into great depth of how African Americans were cut out of that. Right, uh, and he—I believe in the documentary—he called it a white stimulus packet, if you will. <laughs> so, right, right. You know. Well, they—they they actually in this under the GI Bill in this book, the inequality hidden within the race-neutral GI Bill by Shannon Luter's manual in 2017, they actually highlight what you're speaking to, I think, which is that that blacks were pushed away from GI-sponsored home loans, which enabled white vets mm-hmm. to own property that they could then pass on to their children. In the, summer of ni- in the summer of 1947, 3,000 VA home loans were issued in Mississippi. Only two of those loans were granted to black veterans. Wow. So, so, so at, at, at every point in our history, whether it's the GI Bill, whether it's the Social Security Act, yeah. th- there, there is an, another accelerating wealth disparity roadblock put up that each generation deals with new forms of oppression. And many of them were totally, exactly. le- totally legal in the sense yeah, that they were in yeah. those le- legislatures and, and that type of thing. So I think it's an important point that you made that, look, when you live in an oppressive system, the laws themselves are used not to correct the inequities. In other words, the laws themselves do not 
get at the root problem. Instead, they enable the unequal relationships to continue while projecting an image that inequities are wrong and should be addressed, but do little to address them. Now, arguably, things have gotten better, but that's a real slippery slope. Yeah. Uh, when you're getting one one hundredth of what you should get paid for, and then 20 years later, you're getting five one hundredths what you should be getting paid for or whatever, you know, that's improvement in a sense, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but, but what kind of, well, impro- what kind of improvement you, is that? I tell you, there's an African-American scholar, his name is John Henry Clark, Dr. John Henry Clark, excuse me, and he says that, talking to the African-American, and, and he said that when, when you, he's talking to everybody, but in, in particularly, I believe he was, he meant this comment for African-Americans, he said, when you start your history at slavery, everything else thereafter will seem like progress. Right. So, a lot of people say, well, aren't, aren't we progressing? Aren't things getting better in the United States? And my argument would be the same argument that Malcolm X would make, and is that, you know, if you stab a man in the back nine inches and pulled it out six, would you, would you say that's making progress? You know, right. I, I, I doubt, I sincerely doubt you'd call that making progress. Mm-hmm. So my my argument is that there are things that I'm fighting for now that you could arguably say my grandfather had to fight for in nineteen in the nineteen forties, well, that that's a that's a, that's um that's seventy years, it, and it's the, depending on if you're talking about the early forties going into the late forties, that's a that's an eighty to seventy year gap in there. So if I'm still fighting for those same things, or happening to at least put forth an effort to fight for those things, then am I has progress really been made? Right. And I think the system is almost incapable of doing something that approaches what what should go on. So Malcolm X talks specifically to this issue in one of his speeches within a year of his death about the impossibility in his eye of this system to provide racial justice. Before we continue, we need to take a brief pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is your community radio station. We will be back after just a few announcements to share with you Malcolm X's words about the potentiality of what this system that he lived in and that we live in can do to address social justice. So please stay tuned. We'll be back in a flash. Don't touch that dial. 